Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening, I presume, for the first time in a month, because I haven't produced anything in over a month, and the reason I haven't produced anything in the past month is because I got a new job. Yes, I am currently a server at a pizza parlor in Coral Gables. And yes, I know what you're thinking. Server at a pizza parlor in Coral Gables? Fuck the podcast, you've made it. And while it's certainly the case that my head is now wedged firmly into the ceiling of my ambitions, I'm being more frugal with my time these days because I work about 50 hours a week and also I need to spend so much time simply counting the bags of cash. Anyway, this episode is just to catch you up on my new job at the pizza parlor. And let me begin by telling you how I got the job. I lied. It was, however, a white lie. A lie I've been telling myself with footnotes. It wasn't some egregious lie, like where they asked me what I did for my last job and I told them that I was building dicks on the moon. It wasn't even like I told them that I understood how to make an Excel spreadsheet. Which, by the way, it's it's more likely that I would that I would go build dicks on the moon than ever design a coherent Excel spreadsheet. I will say, in my defense, on the subject of this dishonesty at the job interview, I will say that it had, it had not even occurred to me that I could get this job, any job, by lying about my credentials until I finally lied about my credentials. And the only reason it did come to mind is because several people started telling me that I had to do it if I wanted to get a job in hospitality. Most pointedly, A bartender at Red Bar told me that I needed to lie in order to get this job, and he turned out to be right. What had been happening for the past couple years is I would get hired as a a busser at one fancy restaurant or another, and because all I had ever been was a busser, that was the only job that they felt comfortable giving me. Or so I thought. And the reason I thought this was true is because that's what they told me. And there's got to be some part of my soul that is still in the fourth or fifth grade, because I am consistently surprised whenever someone lies to me. Whenever someone tells me a story that, that is an egregious lie, but it's also kind of somewhere within the realm of possibility, I always assume that I am just not understanding the situation. I just never resort to the assumption that someone is being dishonest. So anyway, what, ha- anyway, what happened is, you know, they kept telling me, you, you know, you're not quite equipped to be a server here. You have to, we, we, we don't hire servers. We only, you know, we hire bussers and we promote from within. So what happened is I went and I finally, I was just complaining and ranting about this whole situation to one of the bartenders at Red Bar. His name is also Alex. And he said to me, look, all of these places saying that they don't hire servers, that they promote from within, that's bullshit. It isn't that they don't trust you to be a server. Anyone can be a server. It's just that nobody wants to be a fucking busboy. And you have experience being a busboy, and they can tell that you're desperate. So they're going to say to you, okay, look, we will hire you as a busboy, you clean tables for a few weeks, and then, you know, we'll talk about promoting you once you, you know, better understand the layout of the restaurant. And after that, they're just going to string you along with promises of a promotion that they have no intention of ever actually giving you. I said, okay, thank you for just completely dashing my optimism. So what should I do? How, how? And, and he said simply, lie. Just lie to them. Because they are going to lie to you about everything that it suits them to lie about. 90% of the experienced bartenders you know, the people who are clearly very good at their job, You ask them how they got started and if they lied on their resume, and they will tell you that of course they lied on their resume, everyone does it. 
And he says, is one of the restaurants you worked for, is it out of business? And I said, yeah, the Big Easy, the steakhouse on Brickell. It, co it closed at the beginning of the pandemic. And he goes, perfect. That's the one where you are going to say you were a server because they're not going to, it's out of business. So they're not going to, you know, call so that, the manager. You know, it made sense what he was saying. He was very persuasive. And, and it sounded like a, like a good plan. But still. I didn't feel comfortable about lying, and I don't want to make it seem like I'm some I'm like I'm super virtuous or anything. Frankly, I'm just not good at lying. One time in college, I had to sell drugs for someone. It's a long story how that came to pass, but I need to tell you, I was the worst drug dealer in history. Tracy Morgan was once being interviewed by Rolling Stone, and he said that back in the 90s, he was the worst drug dealer in history because he'd be lecturing a drug addict on how they were ruining their life while selling them crack. I wasn't that bad a drug dealer. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't lecture people on their habits while simultaneously enabling those habits. But in a way I was worse because I was a nervous wreck and my nervousness turned me into a cop magnet. Obviously at the time that this happened, I'm, you know, a fair-skinned Hispanic kid at a predominantly Hispanic college campus. Also, I wore cardigans in 80 degree weather. I had these giant eyeglasses that made me look like Harry Potter. I did not look that threatening. Also, I've always had a healthy supply of two or three nervous tics going at once, and I flinch when I see a lizard. Cops are not intimidated by me. Matter of fact, the other day I was walking through Little Havana on my way to the coffee shop where I go and, and write every morning, and generally, simply because it's the major traffic artery in the neighborhood, I walk up 8th Street in order to get to the coffee shop, the famous Calle Ocho. But on this particular morning, when I turned onto 8th Street just a few minutes past dawn, with my sunglasses and headphones and backpack, I saw a homeless man who's new to the area and kind of frightening. Not frightening because he's homeless, which incidentally, I'm always super afraid that people are going to misinterpret that. I live in a neighborhood with a lot of homeless people, and a lot of them suffer some kind of conspicuous mental illness. But in my two and a half years in this part of town, walking at least two or three miles a day through the neighborhood every single day, I have had maybe three bad encounters. I will be the first to attest that the overwhelming majority of homeless people in my community are not just totally harmless and friendly, they're actually cool people. People who, if they came and sat two stools over from you at a bar without like the visual cues of homelessness, you would have a, a lovely conversation with them and you would imagine that they're perfectly well adjusted and their life is going fine. Which, by the way, and I'm sorry about this digression, but I was, I was struck a couple years ago by this one particular profile on the Humans of New York Instagram feed. If you're not familiar it, familiar with it, Humans of New York is like this this photographer. He goes and he shoots some beautiful portrait shot of a random New Yorker, and then he quotes a paragraph from their life story underneath the photo. Anyway, there was this this profile on Humans of New York of a young homeless couple. I guess they were in their mid or late twenties, and at one point in their interview, they mentioned that maybe once a month or every other month, they managed to save up like fifty bucks for a date night. And they'll go to a movie and they'll have like a sit-down dinner at a diner or something. Which I guess it like it, re it reveals a certain narrowness in my thinking. Actually though, just the other day, you know, let me give you like a sound effect. The other day I was at my local coffee shop, the one where I go and do some writing every mor- The one, remember, the one that I was heading to when this story began? While I was there at the coffee shop, I was writing and there's this really pretty woman with red hair who comes in and she sits on an armchair in the corner, and she does Zoom meetings from her laptop. Anyway, a homeless guy comes into the coffee shop. He goes up to the counter, and he pulls up some cash to buy an espresso. And then, after drinking his espresso at the table beside me, he goes over to the corner, where the pretty woman on her laptop is sitting and Zooming, and he sits down in the armchair beside her. And he starts talking to her, telling her that she's beautiful, and asking if she knows French, 
And then he starts talking to her in French. Bonjour, madame. Oui, du fromage. Do you like crepes? And the woman is like, no, I, I don't I speak French, I'm sorry. And so the guy says, well, I can teach you French. I can give you lessons free of charge. He was being a bit of a creep. And meanwhile, there's a huge irregular at this coffee shop. He's like six foot five. And he notices the exchange. And he leans over to the woman and he says, ma'am, is this guy bothering you? And then, without waiting for her to answer, he looks at the homeless dude and he goes, Buddy, you need to get out of here. And then the homeless dude snaps. And he goes, Hey, fuck you, man. Mind your business. Like a total, a total sudden explosion. He went from Casanova to Mel Gibson in like a second. And so the really tall guy, he's like, I'm going to call the cops. Look, I'm pulling out my phone. And he starts making a show of the fact that he's dialing 911. Whereupon the homeless guy stands up, he grabs the waistband of his jeans and gives them a dignified tug. And then he makes a gun with his forefinger and his thumb. He points it at the giant man who's about to call the cops and he screams, I'm in the mafia, man. You don't know what the fuck you're doing. I'll get Don Corleone, man. He'll kill your ass. And then the dude stormed out of the coffee shop down South Miami Avenue into the sunset. It was a bit of a scene. And the poor woman was clearly way uncomfortable after the whole thing. And so, like, all, there were a lot of dimensions to this episode, like lots of little details to chew on. But what mostly caught my attention for the next few days was, like, that dude mentioned The Godfather. Like, Don Corleone is a movie character and also apparently a friend of his. But then I was like, when... I started wondering, when did this homeless man last see the Godfather? What was what was the situation in his life? Was it some more secure period of life where he was able to keep a roof over his head, like maybe in the 1990s? Was it on TV when he was staying at some kind of shelter? Was he a teenager? But then I started to consider that, if, like, if you have a serious mental illness, then it can be like a very quick and steep slide into poverty, and from poverty into homelessness. Because let's say you're schizophrenic, or you're bipolar, or you've got like really crippling depression, and you've got medication that keeps you in check, but that medication is kind of pricey. So then let's say there's you have some financial setback, a tire blows out, whatever, and now you can't afford your medicine. Or, the thing that happens way more often, you start taking half of the intended dose so that your prescription will last longer. As a result of this, you're not getting the right dose, and you lash out at work or something, or you get incredibly depressed and you don't show up to work for a week. And then you lose your job, and then you can't pay your rent, and then you're evicted. And suddenly, in the course of two or three months, You've gone from being a dignified member of society, working in an office, making 38 or 40 grand a year, to suddenly you're living in your car. And then maybe your car gets towed, and so now you're living on the street. And so it occurred to me, like, maybe the last time this dude watched The Godfather was in his own apartment, on his own TV, three months ago. Anyway, that's a downer note, but I was telling you about the cops and, like, being a cop magnet and how I was walking to the coffee shop on 8th Street. So I'm walking along 8th Street, it's like 7 in the morning, and I stopped... Because it was really early, I was like the only person out there on the street except for this particular homeless guy who was giving me pause. The one I said was kind of intimidating. And he was wigging me out, and he has been wigging me out for the couple weeks that he's been here because this guy is really angry. Which is not unusual. This guy is a little different though. Because as I see him here at 7am or whatever it is, he is flailing around as though a bunch of invisible people... Are attacking him and he isn't just imagining himself accosted by a horde of like invisible combatants he is defending himself with karate now I don't have an eye for martial arts I don't know if the moves that he's doing are actual martial arts moves if I had to guess I would say he has no idea what he's doing and he's just pretending to be Bruce Lee but that being said the dude is flexible and very fast 
And when he goes to kick one of his invisible opponents in the head, he performs a pretty fucking menacing and effective looking kick. So anyway, I saw the Ghost Whisperer swinging kicks on 8th Street shortly after dawn, and I thought, you know what? I'm gonna take 9th today. So I turn around, I walk down the block, and I turn onto 9th Street, and I start walking toward the coffee shop. But I shit you not, the moment I turn onto 9th Street, there was a cop right in front of me on a horse. Just a single cop, clip-clopping up 9th Street, coming to see me and stopping at the intersection, like, laying this inquisitive look on me, as though he'd been waiting for me to get there. And, and at this point, like, I'm looking at the cop, and I'm like, I fucking hate little Havana so much. It happens every now and then that I, like, I just get overwhelmed with contempt for this fucking neighborhood. Because, like, I'm trying to go get a cup of coffee on 8th Street, but there's a homeless ninja on the sidewalk. So then I go and I try to get a cup of coffee on 9th Street, but then I go on 9th Street, there's a fucking man on a horse. And 10th Street is protected by, like, a dwarf with riddles. But so he stops his horse right in front of me, and he looks down with all this, like, gravity in his face, and he's wearing, he's wearing a helmet and black gloves and tall black leather boots, and there's nothing on the horse, I realize, to signify that this is a police horse, and not just like Mr. Ed, the, the Mr. Ed, the talking horse of Little Havana, who I guess would be called Sen Senor Eduardo. Anyway, the cop is looking in my direction. My point, which I was beginning to tell you, is that I'm really, I was a really bad drug dealer. We've come a long way from there. I want to tell you about a podcast I recently discovered that I know you're going to like. If you want to learn Spanish and connect with the 572 million people who speak Spanish around the world, you should definitely check out the Learn Spanish con Salsa podcast. Every week, host Tamara Marie brings you one step closer to fluency by making language learning fun and relatable and conversant and incisive because it's not just recitation and like the mechanics of language that she's describing. She's having actual conversations with guests about serious topical issues. Learn Spanish con Salsa immerses you in Latino culture and teaches Spanish through music and conversation. Delete all those boring, robotic, language-learning apps. Burn your textbooks, yell at your tutor. You know what? Drop out of school. I tend not to encourage this. I'm not sure my sponsor will appreciate it, but frankly, if you've got the internet, a library card, and a device to hear Learn Spanish con Salsa, you really don't need anything else. One time in my <laughs> One time in my senior year of high school, when I finally had a car, I played hooky, and I spent the whole day at Borders Bookstore on US1 reading random stuff, magazines, and whatever. And I remember in particular, I read this like little beginner's guide to postmodernism. It was a very rewarding day where I learned a whole bunch of stuff, but I remember being so angry at the end of it, where I was like in four hours of casual, promiscuous reading at Borders, I've learned way more than I ever learned in a given week of school. And that's what Learn Spanish con Salsa is like. What's really going to help you learn Spanish is listening to a show like that, where you're hearing real people have real conversation in English and Spanish. In fact, you can listen to the show, learn a bunch of stuff, and, and not even realize that you're picking up a language. Subscribe to the Learn Spanish con Salsa podcast now and hear a new episode every Tuesday. Just search for Learn Spanish con Salsa wherever you get your podcasts. Getting back to our story, what happens is I've got these pills in my pocket, and I've got like six buyers around campus to whom I've got to go and deliver them. So I walk out of my dorm, I go across campus into the student union where I'm supposed to meet my first buyer. He's studying on the second floor of the bookstore, and this guy was somebody that I knew. But obviously, I'd never sold him drugs before. So I go to the bookstore, I go to the second floor, and I approach him, and I sit down, we had a little chit-chat, until finally I dropped my voice and I was like, so, how do we do this? And he looks at me kind of alarmed, like disoriented, and then he goes, oh, right, 
and he leans over in his seat and he pulls his wallet out of his pocket and he starts plucking some bills out of the fold. And I lurched across the table and I slammed both my hands down on his wallet, covering the cash, scrambling to stuff it back into the fold. But I'm all heated and flustered and I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? Someone's gonna see. And he jerked his hands back and he goes, what, they're gonna see me hand you money? And I said to him, they're gonna see us trade money for pills. He goes, what did you put the pills in? And I said, I've got, them, I've got them wrapped in a little Ziploc. They're here in my pocket. And he goes, all right, here. And so he reaches into his backpack and he comes up with a little bottle of Benadryl, a small one. And he slides it over to me. But he doesn't say anything. He just slides the Benadryl toward me and he gives me this loaded look. And so I, like, I pick up the bottle and I'm like, do I, do I put this in my ass? He goes, put the pills in the Benadryl bottle. Nobody's going to notice. And I said, oh, oh, they'll notice. Believe me, they'll notice. You see, at the age of 20, I had somehow fallen under the firm impression that even though nobody wanted anything to do with me, they were all watching me. I also thought, since I had only ever bought drugs once in my entire life from a redheaded kid in high school who I told you about, the one who sold pot and whose mom found like an ounce of weed under his bed one day and she was like, all right, you're going to Israel. And then she fucking sent him to Israel. Anyway, fuck. My point is that I didn't know how drug deals were conducted. I thought it would be like as inherently conspicuous as like oral sex, which incidentally, and this of course is way too much information, but when I was a teenager, I was dating someone who was like, I want to give you a blowjob. And we were in like a big house late at night with the room to ourselves and there was soft music and we were laying in bed and she's like, I want to give you a blowjob. And I was like, here? I just, I just never felt like I was not being looked at or overheard. Like every place seemed too indiscreet for me to do anything. Which in some cases I was being overheard when it came to sex shit, particularly in college. Like I've told you in a, in a previous episode about my first college roommate. I think I, I called him Ken in the episode. Anyway, Ken was a really big eater. And he used to bring a ton of pizza home from the cafeteria in a, in a, in a to-go box. And he would, he would put the clamshell container, which had like 13 slices of pizza in it, he would put it in his briefcase, and then he would he would saunter back to the dorm. He looked like Jackie Gleason walking across campus. He just had this natural glow in him because he knew he was about to eat. And he lived for those solitary late afternoons where he could eat a fuckload of pizza in bed while watching YouTube or playing Guitar Hero or something. Generally, on Fridays, like waiting for his brother to pick him up so that they could go away and spend a weekend playing video games in Fort Lauderdale. And one time my girlfriend, my high school sweetheart with whom I was having a long distance relationship, she was visiting from out of town, but she had shown up kind of early and we had been like inseparably sex crazed during the previous summer. And then suddenly, as freshmen in college, we were separated and separated for long stretches of time, like three weeks at a time. And so, of course, right away, she basically walks into my dorm and we start having sex. Weird sex. I'm not going to get into it, but if, like, if you've ever been in a long distance relationship, you know what I'm talking about. Because something happens where like, you, got, you guys are, are separated, and so for lack of physical intimacy, you start talking about it with each other and writing to each other about it. And so sex becomes this incredibly linguistic thing in your life. And because your sexual energy is now being communicated to one another linguistically, it starts bringing your imagination a little more intimately into the fold. And it kind of widens the borders of your sexual imagination. There's actually a pretty convincing depiction of this, I think. 
I think, in Jonathan Franzen's novel Freedom, which is one of my all-time favorite novels, like top five, and suddenly, which is suddenly a very unpopular thing to say in the world of books, even though back in 2011 and 2012, it sold like three million copies, and it was a pick for Oprah's book club. It was hugely popular. Everybody was reading it. Seemingly, everybody loved it. Franzen was on the cover of Time magazine with the headline, Great American Novelist, none of which, of course suggests inherent literary value, but my point is that a lot of people were reading it and loving it, and now, a decade later, you would think it never made a splash. Anyway, uh, there's a scene in Freedom that Franzen ended up getting hashtagged about on Twitter, because people were talking one day about, like, horrible sex scenes in literature, and they cited a sex scene in Freedom as one of the most grievous offenses. But they took it out of context. The scene that they quoted came from a section in the book where these two 18-year-olds are having... Can you hear the fucking ice cream man? It's so weird. I have a, The ice cream man trolls the streets of Little Havana, but like when, you, when I go out there and I look at his, his wares, the things that he's peddling, like, everything is melted! <laughs> Just with total impunity, he's selling sugar water. Like, bagged sugar water with the, with a popsicle stick stabbed into it. And that's not even the majority of his, like, display. Most of what he's selling is soda and chips. He's like the worst ice cream man. <laughs> anyway, the scene they quoted from came from a section of the book where these two 18-year-olds are having a long-distance relationship, a long-distance relationship, and they start having phone sex. And each successive session gets kind of weirder and more imaginative and symbolic than the last. And it gets so crazy at one point that the woman in this relationship, I think her name is, is Connie, she talks about her clitoris elongating to, like, the size of a pencil and how she wants to, like, slide it down his urethra. And then... And then she wants to use her spaghettified clitoris to fuck his erection. Which, of course, is totally batshit. And not at all the kind of thing that my my own long-distance girlfriend and I were talking about when we were 18. But <laughs> when when I was... I, when that book came out when I was 19 years old. And uh, my girlfriend, that's that same girlfriend, she actually gave it to me as a gift. Because I was so enchanted by like the phenomenon of it. And I remember coming across that that phone sex scene in my college cafeteria and being like... How does he know about this? <laughs> what would happen really between my girlfriend and me is that she would read stories on literotica, and uh, we, we both would, and then send them back and forth, our favorite ones. Here, look, when, when we finally got around to seeing each other, after like several consecutive weeks of just working each other up with, by sending each other porn and erotica and shit, we would end up having the kind of sex that like, like someone's ankle would fly out and smash my desk lamp, or, or we would both wake up the next morning and we would find splinters in intimate places. So anyway, there's this Friday where she's visiting me, we jump right into having sex on Friday afternoon, and once we're, we're kind of hitting our hitting our stride I hear Ken put his key in the lock of the door and I know I know for a fact that he's got a big ass clamshell full of pizza slices in his briefcase so I hear him coming up to the door and I shout out Ken don't don't come in don't come in and he freezes on the other side of the door and he goes what's up and I was like Ken I'm having sex you gotta go away and he's so indignant and he scoffs through the door and he's like oh are you are you serious he was from Queens, by the way. And, and he stood out there for a few minutes while we finished up and cleaned up. And then, I don't know if this was like the, that night or the next. I, it might have been that my girlfriend had shown up on a Thursday instead of Friday. And that's why we had to share a room with him for one night. But anyway, my girlfriend and I, 
that night were we sleep on my little bed on one side of the room while Ken slept on his on the other side of the room. And we again, we could not contain ourselves because of the long distance and all of the illicit texting and whatever. So we started having sex, but very quietly. And I do mean quietly. If you had been able to discern in the moonlight all of the movement going on under the sheets in the dark, you'd have been like, are they eating Totino's pizza rolls in there? Because you couldn't hear a thing. A couple days later, the weekend is over, my girlfriend is gone, Ken comes into our room and he's like, I gotta tell you something. You guys have the loudest sex. And I was like, what are you talking about, Ken? You're full of shit, man. <laughs> and he goes, every time you guys have sex, I gotta hear it. The other night, I'm over here, I'm dozing off, and I hear it. I hear you guys. I hear the bed. I hear the squeak, the squeak. And I said to myself, I can't believe this. I said, these guys are fucking over there. They're actually fucking. Why did I, why, why, why am I telling this story? Drugs. I'm selling drugs. This is college. I'm selling drugs and I'm not good at it. Okay, so I'm here on the second floor of the bookstore at FIU. Let me do a transition. I'm here on the second floor of the bookstore at FIU and I'm trying to sell drugs to my friend, but, but he's having to like talk me through the process. Eventually, I take the little bottle of Benadryl into the bathroom, and I go into a stall, and I sit on the toilet, and with trembling hands, I put the Adderall capsules into his Benadryl bottle. Maybe insert the sound of, like, pills shaking. But then a little bit later, I had to sell drugs to another person, and then another person, and then another person, and each time, you would think it would get easier. <laughs> but it doesn't. I'm getting more nervous, man. I feel like I'm being watched, and like my offenses are being tallied up. And when I go, I know when I go to sell the last couple Adderalls, it's gonna be to sell, like a 60-year-old man with a backward baseball cap and a Backstreet Boys shirt, and he's gonna be like, hello, man, isn't it cool to be in college? And I'm gonna be too nervous to notice that he's a narc, and then they're gonna arrest me, and I'm gonna go jail whatever but anyways it reaches this fever pitch so that at a certain point <laughs> i've got like three transactions to go and i'm walking through the student union and the sun is starting to go down and i walk past a police officer and for some reason i stop right in front of him and with my eyes wide i look him in the face and i go hello officer just like that like high-pitched and querulous hello officer i sounded like millhouse and the cop looks at me and he's kind of disinterested and goes hey and then we just hold eye contact for like four seconds. I had nothing else to say. I have no idea why I stopped and said hello. Um, but a beat goes by and he's like, is everything okay? And I go, yeah. <laughs> With my voice all trembly, I was like, yeah. And then we just stood there. And, uh, finally, and finally, I just walked away. Anyways, it was stupid. It was so fucking stupid, I'll never deal drugs again. Which is something that obviously, as a law-abiding citizen, I have no intention of doing. I don't think it's a very good thing to be a drug dealer. But I also never want to deal drugs again just because I'm so bad at it. The same reason I never want to pick up another fucking recorder, like the one I had to play in elementary school in music class. I never want to pick up a yo-yo again. I never want to see a yo-yo again. Or a baseball. God help me. So, um... So I got this new job at a pizza parlor. <laughs> <laughs> 